Thank you, Kristen. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Have you? It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. For those in Children's Church up through grade four, you can be dismissed at this time if you'd like, or you can keep in here with us if you'd like to. For the rest of you, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. Joy to be back with you in the study of the Word together. And because it's been a little while, let's pick up in verse 1, just read up to our current section, and let the Word of the Lord speak uh, for itself as we give Him praise for it. Verse 1 says this, 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, verse 8, and, least, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached, that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if we have hope in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who were asleep. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom of the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fools. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, 
but a bare grain, perhaps, of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another of flesh of beasts, another flesh of, of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable one. It is sown, verse 43, in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, verse 45. So also it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you wanted to say amen in your own heart several times, didn't you? Because that's what the word does, and that's the power that comes from it. We're studying through 1 Corinthians. It's been uh, certainly an exciting book. One of the things, too, that you do as you begin every book is really to set a foundation upon which we understand the book. What does the word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? And then that application, how does that apply to me? And so we have entitled this whole study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, because I think that is really what the letters are all about. The church at Corinth was a church with some trouble, not unlike churches today. Uh, it is a church with some misunderstanding, a church with some interpersonal issues, a church with doctrinal issues, a church with individuals having trouble. It's a church with individuals that needed a basic understanding of their new life in Christ. And you had people from all walks of life coming out of this sea of paganism and idolatry and immorality, and they're all in this tiny island of Christianity that is the church in Corinth in the midst of all of that. And so Paul gives them the word of the Lord to help them grow and become healthy. And it is still that way today, as I mentioned to you last week. There are all kinds of wonderful things that you're going to miss out on if you don't regularly read this book. And men, if you're leading a family, uh, they're probably going to miss out on them too because you are missing out on them and you're not leading them in that direction. And on the other side, there are all kinds of trouble and sorrow and regret that you will inevitably experience and I might say needlessly experience by not knowing what's contained in this book. And again, men, if you're leading a family, they may have to experience that as well. Trouble and sorrow and difficulty because you don't understand what's being said. And Paul certainly knows this. And we just read through a whole bunch of instruction, didn't we? Very important instruction. And he's instructed the churches he planted to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then he says uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, and, not, and to in, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, but not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not yet able. So there were things then, as we think about the word of God, as we think particularly about the church in Corinth, there were things that they should have known from the word, but they still didn't know them. And remember, Paul had been there for 18 months, and he had taught through all kinds of things. And we know the kinds of sermons that Paul taught and how long they were. And so we understand Paul covered a lot of stuff. And yet he says, even in his letter now, listen, I would like to teach you deeper things, but I can't because you haven't learned even the most uh, basic of things about your walk with Christ. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 puts it this way. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's pretty firm, isn't it? So just to put that together in your mind, where does the knowledge come from that the prophet's speaking about? It comes from the word of God. And that takes us back to that second point we just said. Hosea just calls it destruction. Uh, Paul, uh, you know, Paul says, listen, you, you were, you're infants and, you, and you're still fleshly, you're still carnal. You know, we say, listen, you, there's all kinds of trouble, sorrow, and regret that you're going to have and you're going to experience if you don't know what the word of God says. And you haven't understood it and you haven't read it regularly. And wonderful things you'll miss out on. Blessings the Lord's promised if you do certain things. And you're going to miss all of those, see. And Hosea just says, listen, 
the fact that knowledge is absent from you uh, leads to your destruction. So we teach the word as if our life depended on it, as we taught the kids this last week at camp, because it does. And we teach the word and we give it out because other people's lives depend on it, because it does. And so you give out the gospel because their life depends on it. And we find all those things in the word of God. And you lead people to Christ, and then the part of the Great Commission is faithfully teach them everything I taught you. And so again, there's this passing down of the things that you've understood, the things that you understand daily from the word to someone else. And you're mentoring someone, you're, you're uh, bringing someone under your wing and helping them to grow. You are passing down the word of God, not your own experiences, not you know, some little you know, things that you figured out in your life, but what the word of God says and how that applies. That's where they're going to grow, see. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Just give you a little survey here as we think about this. And perhaps you've skipped over this, um, some of these words here. I want to draw your attention to them. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5.1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, verse 3, but we also exalt in our tribulation. Catch this, knowing. So what are we supposed to know? The following. And some of it is you should have known, and you'll see these in just a minute. Knowing this, so you know this, that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So, we're already supposed to know what? That difficult times and difficult circumstances are not bad luck. Okay? But it's amazing how many believers think, I'm just in a stretch of bad luck. I'm just going through a really hard time in my life and I'm not sure why. What does Paul say? Knowing that... Tribulation, or difficult time, a tight, it's, it's a tight squeeze is what that is. A pinching place, that's what the word tribulation is. My dad used to say between a rock and a hard place. I don't know what exactly that means, but he said that all the time. Now I pass that on to my sons, and they're like, wow, dad's stuff. Um, tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So, it's not bad luck you're going through. You're going through difficult times because the Lord wants to perfect you. It brings forth proven character. And proven character brings forth hope and expectation of all that God has planned for us in his love for the redeemed. So even in difficult times, that enhances your appreciation of the things that will follow, which will be much better than the difficult times we find on this earth. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says again, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Catch this. Knowing this, so it's important to know this, remember this, Paul says, understand this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. So, again, what should you know? If you're born again, you died with Christ, so you no longer have to be a slave of the appetites of sin. So, it's amazing still how many times I still hear people say, well, I got the old self and the new self, and they're constantly button heads all the time. I'm sorry. That passage just said, your old self was crucified, and guess what? It didn't rise. What rose? The new self rose, the new self who's the new you inside. Knowing this, so don't give yourself an excuse that it's just the old self at work. There's no old self, see? You no longer have to be a slave of the appetites of your flesh. Know this, Paul says. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now catch this, do this knowing what? The time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. According to Paul, you should know it's time to get busy about the master's work and his commandments because the time of salvation is much nearer than when you first believed. So there's a motivation, right? Time of salvation is nearer. Paul says you know this. Time to wake up from sleep. Now salvation is nearer. Find a place to serve. Plug yourself in. Get involved with something. Invest your life in someone. Be sharing the gospel. This is all the parts of things that have been given to us. Paul says know this. The time is short. Okay? The time is short. Ephesians chapter 5 and, and verse 5. I'm going to read from verse 3 just to give you the context. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and no silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. But rather giving of thanks. 
Again, here it is. For this you know with certainty. No immoral person, no impure person, or covetous man, or an idolater who has an, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So you can be known, and you can certainly know then, Paul says, yourself, who does and who does not have an inheritance in the kingdom. Why? Because you can look at the pattern of a life and say there isn't any way they could ever have a relationship with the Lord over the long term. See, Paul says, this you know with certainty. You know this. How do you know it? It's all throughout the written word of God. See, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. Knowing, what do we know, Paul? That whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. That's a great verse, isn't it? That's one of those things you'll miss out on a blessing if you don't understand what the word of God says and you're not reading it. Why? Paul says no matter who you are or what your social status is or your material ability to do good, whether it's small or great. God keeps track of the good that you do for each other, and he pays it back to you. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians 3.2. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for, here it is, you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. You already know this. You're supposed to know this. And yet, see, difficult times tend to, tend to promote complaining, right? Why me, God? Why am I having to go through this kind of thing? See? And yet, Paul says you should already know you've been destined for affliction. You've been destined to be persecuted for your faith. You've been destined for that. Should we be upset about difficulties and hardships and persecutions that come along? No. How do you know? Jesus' own words from John 15, 20. Remember the word I said to you, Jesus says to his disciples, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. I already said this to you, Jesus said. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, don't be disturbed. You yourselves know you've been, you've been destined for this. You were born again into this very thing, see. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, therefore I was angry with this generation and said they go astray in their heart. Why do they go astray in their heart? They do not know my ways. See, as he talked about his people, as he talked about his people, and I'm skipped over that one, I'll read it to you. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They did not know my ways. I think it's fair to say, as, as the writer of Hebrews evaluates those who've come before, his ancestors, and, you know, and re-quotes a passage, they always go astray in their hearts because they didn't know my ways. I think it's fair to say that the Lord will have this to say to some in the church, as he said so long ago to his people of Israel. They did not know my ways. Wouldn't you say it's fair? I mean, if, if, a people, if people who call themselves by his name are not regularly in the word, how can they possibly know what he expects? Okay. It's everything. It's everything. And it's a great passage Jim read this morning about the brains who diligently studied to see things that were true and took the, took the scriptures home and worked their way through them. Listen, this is the pattern of life for those who love Christ. A time in the word every single day to know what the word says. Because the Lord just says, you know, and the people who came before are, are examples, both for good and for ill. See? I was angry with that generation. They didn't know my ways. How would they know your ways, Lord? Because they would seek his word and read it. And how many times do we see in the Old Testament when the word of God had been ignored for long periods of time and then the priest would stand up and begin to read and the people would hear what was said and rend their clothes and, and fall on their face and say, oh my word, what's the word of the Lord saying here? And we, we're guilty of all these things. And yet they would have known the Lord's ways and their, their path would have been correct had they been in the word. So these things are very, very important. There's things we're supposed to know. James 1, 16 through 19. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know. How would you know that? Well, when you read the word cover to cover, over and over, you will immediately recognize that everything good that you have is from his hand. You're not going through a series of good luck. You haven't had good fortune fall on you. You will recognize as a believer that any good gift that you have is a direct gift from the Lord. He provided it for you. See. First John 2, 3. But this we know that we've come to know him 
How? If we keep his commandments. So see, you can't just say, oh, I know, I know Jesus, but you just live in a way that's contrary to everything he says. It doesn't matter what we say about ourselves, according to 1 John 2, 3. It is only a matter of us understanding we really know him when we do what he says. 1 John 4, 2. But this you know. What, Paul? What, John? The spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. How can we know if a testimony is true? How can we know if that new book in the Christian bookstore is true? What does the speaker say? How do we know what the author believes? Well, read his testimony. See, you can know if something is of the spirit of God by what they say. Is that important? Of course. It's of utmost importance to know what the Word of God says so you can compare it to what people say and go home and study and make sure it's correct. So as we said earlier, the church in Corinth was a church with some trouble, a church with some misunderstanding, a church with interpersonal issues. It's a church with doctrinal issues, a church having some trouble, a church with individuals in need of basic understanding of new life in Christ, not unlike today. And Paul uses the Word of God to equip them to be healthy and beloved. It's exactly the same way today. It hasn't changed one bit. The church is healthy when they understand what the Word of God says and when they do what it says. See? And the church is blessed when they understand what the Lord blesses. And they do those things, and the Lord can pour out his blessing on you. See? And so begin, Paul, Paul then begins this letter by describing to the church in Corinth the benefits they have by virtue of being redeemed. Who you are in Christ, you're a saint, what's that mean? And then Paul begins to address issues in the church that inhibit the health of the church, and he shows them what the Word of God says, and many times says, this you know, or this is from the Lord, or you have heard this already before. So these are things that they already understand and haven't put into place. And so he goes back and has to readdress all these issues that should have been addressed already had the church been walking in the Word, see, and letting the Word dwell in them in wisdom. And some of them were pretty bad. And just as a reminder from, you know, chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 2, unity is this topic. And he dealt with errors and regarding division and all of that. And from 5.1 all the way to the end of that chapter, his topic is purity. So he has to deal with issues regarding immorality inside the membership. And then chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, Paul has to deal with testimony. So he deals with errors in conflict resolution and taking believers to court and the way that they handle conflict inside the church. And then from chapter 6, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 7, Paul deals with the body and singleness and marriage and errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce and all those kinds of things. And they still plague the church today. And yet we, we have very clear teaching from the word of God and what is to be done and what isn't to be done. It's not hidden. And yet there's tons of books out there and they say all the things that you want to hear. You can, you can pull that book in. And the problem is you read that book and you don't take that and you try to plug the meanings that they're using from a certain passage into the other passages that talk about the same thing. And then you would find that they don't line up anywhere else. And so now you've got this one meaning that you're going to use to justify what you're doing. And then you move it over here to this other passage of scripture and it can't possibly mean that. And then you would know, hey, we can't follow that. See? And these are things that we deal with on a regular basis. And so Paul deals with all that, see. And then chapter 8, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul deals with freedom in Christ. And then the errors that popped up regarding Christian liberty. And then in chapter 11, Paul really deals with actual conduct in church meetings. There's stuff going on that shouldn't be going on. There's stuff that isn't going on that needs to be. And so he just says, okay, this is the word of the Lord to you. And for, so from chapter 11, verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 14, Paul dealt with communion and errors regarding the Lord's table. And then he, he deals with in chapter 12 through verse 14, for chapter 14, with spiritual giftedness and love as the foundation of all that goes on in the church. And then he addresses this misuse of tongues and errors regarding spiritual gifts. And he lays out all the priorities of the Holy Spirit and what is, is to happen and what isn't to happen in the church when they meet together. So the modern church has to deal with all these issues as well. And so these are things that are very practical. This is what's going on in the church. This is what's going on in your private life. These are things that you're thinking about. These are things that are obvious by your actions. Paul says, here's the word of God. Here's the word of God. Here's the word of God. Here's what the word of God says about that. See? And sometimes we treat the Word of God as if it's not relevant at all, and yet it applies to every portion of our life. We just faithfully read it. We'll find those principles begin to work in us the sanctification the Holy Spirit wants for us to have through His Word. And then we came to chapter 15, where we are now, where Paul has carried along to help the church to see the impact of the resurrection of Christ as the substance of faith. And so he has to deal with errors regarding the resurrection, and resurrection glorification of the believer. 
and the passage here has contained the passages have contained some very wonderfully specific details regarding the reality of Jesus's resurrection and its impact his resurrection's impact on our hope and on death and on our witness and on our resurrection and our glorification and our ultimate triumph and that's where we are now and we're really in the last section of six sections of chapter 15 a very long passage a very rich passage and soon we'll be moving to chapter 16 and he's, he desires the church to be generous with his material things so he's going to really confront the errors regarding money and he's going to pick that up again when we get into second corinthians in chapters eight and nine he's going to talk about the same thing again so god desires purity for the church he desired it to be pure in doctrine and in thought and in conduct and promises blessing for obedience and he promises chastening for disobedience and so paul brings these things to the table and addresses all these things with the church and they're just as relevant today as they were when paul first penned the letter he found the same issues exist in the church today so the instruction to them is still relevant then for us now chapter 15 we've seen paul break the resurrection teaching into six really clear topics topic one we looked at and we just read through it just now, resurrection reality. That's the good news. The tomb is empty, verses 1 through 11. And then resurrection hope of deliverance from our sins, chapter 12 through 20. Then resurrection authority over death, verses 21 through 28. Resurrection motivation, that's to live and to witness and endure hard things, verses 29 through 34. We saw resurrection transformation which we're finishing up today of our fleshly bodies, verses 35 through 49, which we finished up for the most part last time. And then what we're looking at today, resurrection triumph, our final victory, verses 50 through 58. So that's kind of where we hang our hat, if you will. There's some handholds as we get through the passages. And so we have an idea of basically what Paul was talking about. And you probably have marked your Bible up in that way so you understand that. Now, everything in the Christian life from the gospel message and everything about our security and our future and all the promises they are all keyed on the resurrection of Jesus. There's no way we can read through the first 49 verses of this chapter and not come away with that understanding. Everything keys on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul's emphasis here towards the end of the chapter is, as we observed before, death controlled humanity until one defining moment in the entire history of man and all of the created cosmos. Jesus raised from the dead. Everything keys on that. See, Jesus completed his redeeming work on the cross according to the Father's will, and that changed everything about everything. In fact, John 6, verse 40 says that very thing. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That is a marvelous passage, isn't it? It is the will of the Father that all who believe conquer death. That's pretty important, isn't it? Because I'm on my way there, and so are you. And we look in the mirror every morning and we think, man, I'm a lot closer than I thought it was. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus that everyone who believes on, the who believes on Christ conquers death. And so that, the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. 2 Timothy 1.10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, here it is, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Light and immortality to light through the gospel. Did you know when you give the gospel out, you shine light and an opportunity for immortality? And that makes a great motivation to continue to do it, doesn't it? You give the gospel out as if their life depended on it. Because guess what? It does. And a clear presentation of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel, the good news, Christ died for our sins, is of paramount importance. It's a big deal. He abolished death. That's the most important news ever. And so Paul takes his time in chapter 15 and he makes sure they have the right gospel, the right doctrine, the right theology, and they're thoroughly grounded in their hope. And so these last two sections really close out on the fundamental nature of the bodily resurrection of men and women. And he answers some questions. What's going to happen? How is it going to happen? And what will the resurrection look like? And those are the things that we want to know too, right? What's that going to look like? What, what's the essence of that? And Paul has put together really a fantastic list of principles that help the church see the central nature of the resurrection. Starting in verse 34, he's answered the scoffers and the mockers, and he's given the mechanics 
and the form of the believer's bodily resurrection. Just a few verses ago, he pointed out a seed and a plant. We just read that a minute ago. And differing types of animals and fish and birds and different types of heavenly bodies. And they all illustrate the mechanics and the form of the resurrection. And it just shows that Christ is not limited to one manufacturing model. He can create models of all kinds of flesh and, and all kinds of applications and where they apply. And so it shouldn't surprise us, Paul says. And he's answering mockers, so he says, you fools, don't you see this? This is right in front of you all the time. A grain falls to the ground and it dies. And up springs something you didn't expect. Way different, way more glorious than just that hard piece of grain that in, fell into the ground. And so Paul says, listen, this is not surprising. And it's not surprising that he can change the application. He's got applications for animals. He's got applications for birds. He's got applications for fish. Christ knows how to do all this. So the scoffers are saying, hey, you know, nobody dead rises. And then Paul's like, man, you guys are so, so hard-minded and stiff-necked. He shows you this all the time. And so he says, you know, Scripture also tells us this as well. In verse 45, he says, so also it's written, the first man became... First man, Adam, became a living soul, and Paul appeals to Scripture, really, to clinch his argument. He goes, listen, not only are there examples all around you of the marvelous creative work of Christ and his ability to do whatever he wants, it's always been in the Scriptures from the start. And we saw that Paul refers to Genesis 2-7. Genesis 2-7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. For clarity, then, Paul inserts first before man and Adam after it, just so that we understand exactly who's being talked about here. And just his point appears to be the characteristic of man from the very beginning is a living being, a soul. And that was true of Adam, and it's true of all of his descendants. So everybody who came from Adam, same flesh and blood, living soul, a living being on the face of the earth. And we've looked at that, of course, many times. The first Adam passed on his nature to those who came after, and certainly after the fall, the sin principle introduced into humanity by Adam, that was also passed down. But here, really, he's just looking at the fact that Adam had a physical body, and everybody who followed Adam had a physical body. A physical body made for the earth. And then he says, in verse 45, so also it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Obviously here, he's speaking about Jesus, along with Adam, it appears that his point is that Adam was the predecessor of the race and his characteristics are stamped on the race and in the same way, catch this, Christ is the last Adam. He's the predecessor of the race of spiritual people. And there's this wonderful irrevocability about this last Adam, isn't there? By virtue of his permanence as the resurrected Messiah, Jesus as the last Adam really stamps his characteristics on all those who are his. That's a marvelous illustration. You look like Adam, and Eve, but someday you're going to look like Christ exactly, already you do in the new man, and someday in the resurrection you'll be stamped in his image forever. And it's important to note, first Adam implies the last Adam. The first Adam's a real person, last Adam's a real person. First Adam's work with sin leading to the entire human race into sin requires the last Adam's work, okay? So we've got a first Adam, we've got a last Adam, both people who, were, who lived and who did their work on the earth. Christ now resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back for his church. So for all the promises to be fulfilled, for salvation to be true, Jesus has to be bodily resurrected. And as it relates to the form and the mechanics of every believer's future reality, the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven, and yet perhaps on a day-to-day -day basis we may live as if this was the only citizenship we have. We want to make sure we keep that straight. That's something Paul wants us to know, right, in Philippians? Our citizenship is in heaven, which, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with his body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It's not going to be any problem to transform you, according to Paul and to the Philippian church. The resurrected body of Christ shows us something of what life will be like for believers in the new world that the return of Christ will usher in. He is going to change your lowly body so it will be like his glorious body, your humble body like his wonderful body. And then Paul's going to give us much more instruction as we get here to the last part of 1 Corinthians 15. And the explanation, I don't think, can get any more clear than that. Look at verse 49. 
Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we'll also bear the image of the heavenly. And at first look, this just reminds me of verse 44. Remember there? Verse 44. It is sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So just as sure as you have a natural body that resembles Adam, there will be a spiritual body, for sure. And just as you've borne the image of the earthly, we'll also bear the image of the heavenly for those who believe. So, we're just to be sure, just as sure of a spiritual body as we are of a natural body. And that can be either good or bad, see. We can have a spiritual body made for enjoying eternity and other believers and the Lord forever. Or we can have a spiritual body made for eternity in the lake of fire. There can be a warning here. There can be hope here in verse 44. But when you get to verse 49, there's this planting and growth that occurs from the seed and the fixed reality of the future spiritual body, whether you like it or not, he's calling to mind your actual experience as the illustration. And this is really directed to the redeemed. Let's just start with the first half. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, aphorosomen, Aorist, active, indicative verb. The idea is a continuous or habitual condition of wearing as clothing. This is the reality from our birth until this very moment. You have borne the image of Adam from the time you were born until this very moment. You have borne the image of Adam. And of course here, it's the image that corresponds and reproduces the original. You're just like the first one. And just look around you. We're all bearing that image of the earthly. Uh, so, you know, you don't get it too attached to this body. Look at the second half of the verse. We will also bear the image, it says, of the heavenly. And, and obviously this is the future active indicative for Esomen. Again, the idea is a continuous or habitual condition of wearing clothing in the future. This is the future reality. Listen, this is where Paul really hones in on the believer now. He's not talking anymore about those who are, who are not believers, not following Christ. He's talking about believers now. Okay, we understand everybody gets resurrected Everybody gets a new body. That's very clear in the scriptures. Some resurrected to eternal death, some resurrected to eternal life. Paul moves now and just focuses on the believer. Listen, this is your hope. You will also bear the image of the heavenly. Everyone then who is Christ said is coming. That goes back to earlier passages, verse 25. You don't get to see the image of the heavenly yet, see? But that image is going to correspond with the original. And it's a body you're going to be able to keep forever. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, there's some specifics about that body. So let's look at verse 50, if you would. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. And I'll read all the way through to the end. Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality, verse 54, but when this perishable, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where's your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's an amazing passage, isn't it? Arguably one of the most oft-quoted at funerals. It's really so beautiful and so full of hope that portions of this passage have been set to music. You remember where? Messiah, George Friedrich Handel, written in 1741. Easily the most oft-performed piece of classical music of all time written in 24 days by Handel. Did you know that? And as he wrote it, he'd already suffered a stroke. He was paralyzed on his right side. He wasn't able to perform anymore. He began to write the music. He feels like, and his testimony is, that the Lord carried him along. We got to the Hallelujah Chorus. If you read anything about this and know anything about the history of this, 
He broke out in weeping as he was writing the score for it. When his assistant came in, he felt like he had seen gates of heaven opened and the throne of God before him as he wrote. A marvelous passage, but he caps this passage. Why? Because it is so full of hope and so full of power, telling us of our future security and how sure it is and the triumph that is to those, belongs to those who believe. Look at verse 50. Let's go back and let's break it down. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now Paul says this. Now this I say. And really what he's doing is, literally, it's just this I affirm. I affirm this to you. And it just really draws the attention to this most important principle. And God wants you to know some things about your future resurrection. So in verse 50, the Holy Spirit starts with this. Resurrection triumph principle number one. We're going to be transformed. There's a transformation that's coming. And he's going to talk about those who die and those who aren't dead when Christ returns. Those who are Christ that is coming are going to be part of that first resurrection. But there's obviously going to be some who aren't dead when that occurs. And Paul's going to talk about both. But the main thing is, whether you're alive or dead, you're going to be transformed. Believers cannot get there in this body. We've got to have a different one to dwell in that domain. And one of the, those things that is different is this next two words, flesh and blood. Now, this I say, brethren, flesh and blood. Now, it's a way to refer to the physical body here and now, and that's what he's doing. Uh, obviously, they're connected to decay. These are probably the most obvious referrals to the mortal body. Paul mentions them. Uh, we won't be then, if we understand this passage correctly, earthly like Adam, as he's been talking about all in the previous verses. Now, we don't know exactly how we'll be made up, but one thing we won't be is flesh and blood. So that might come as a surprise to you. But according to the scriptures, that's part of the first Adam. And when we look like Christ, we'll still have substance. There'll be a real body, but it won't be a body of flesh and blood as we understand it now. That's what the passage says. It doesn't tell us much more about that other than that's what it is. We'll be heavenly like Christ. Verse 49, again, remember, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, that's the flesh and blood, that's the sin nature, that's looking like Adam, that's the, the process of decay and all the corruption that comes with it and all, the, all that kind of stuff. See, the appetites of the flesh, we won't have that. See? We've borne the image of the earthly, verse 49 says, we'll also bear the image of the heavenly. So he's just talking about being human, see? And you will no longer have that humanness in the flesh and blood. Then he says, being human in this sense, keeps you from being able to look at the next part of it. Now, this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, still remaining in flesh and blood will keep you from inheriting the kingdom. Now, let's clear up what the kingdom is. The, the idea of the kingdom of God here is not the kingdom of God that's universal in the sense that it's the whole universe, the rule of God. It's not talking about that, okay? It's not the kingdom of God reigning in the heart either. That's not what it's talking about either. This is the kingdom of God from verse 24. That's that final state that Paul's been talking about here specifically in this passage. When Jesus has subjected everything. We just read it a moment ago, remember? He's going to bring everything under subjection. He's abolished all rule, all authority, all power. Everything's laid low. All the enemies of Christ, laid low. All those who speak up against God, laid low. He's put all the enemies under his feet. Then he hands over the kingdom. And that's the kingdom you have an inheritance in. That's the kingdom you make the appearance in. But you won't make the appearance in flesh and blood because if you're still in flesh and blood, you don't get that kingdom. Okay? 1 Peter 1, 3 is a, is a great example of this. And I want to make sure we, we grab this. This is, is a very clear teaching of the word of God and not something that's always taught clearly. So look at verse 1 Peter 1, 3, and I'll have you turn somewhere in just a minute in our time remaining. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's just everywhere. How do you get born again to a living hope? Well, if there's no resurrection, you don't have it. But because of the resurrection and because of God's great mercy, you are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Verse 4. And you, got, you, you were born into this living hope to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Same inheritance spoken of 
here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's reserved for you. It is part of what will occur when Jesus sets all the enemies under his feet, lays all the power low, everybody who's raised up against God, all that kind of stuff. That inheritance is reserved for you. And then a rather long passage, and I want you to turn here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Will you look there? It's probably the main passage that deals with your inheritance and the security that is in that inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We're going to close with this. Just a few more comments and we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It's, very, it's so rich, so I want you to look there. It illustrates the point so well. Verse 4, pick up in love. It's a lot of uh, parenthetical statements there and then and some, some definitions. And he says, in love, he, verse 5, predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. He did that through love. He caused that to occur and set his uh, purpose on us according to the kind intention of his will, just because he wanted to, and because his nature is that way. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, speaking of Jesus. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. So speaking, as we said, in the beloved, that becomes the antecedent means referring to the beloved, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So these are the ones fit to inherit the kingdom. Those, uh, these are the ones who are Christ that is coming. The ones who have been, uh, had his love, God's love lavished on them, the ones who were adopted as sons, the ones who have come to know the beloved through the kind intention of his will. This is just different ways of expressing those who are Christ that is coming, those who are redeemed, and different ways to express it, okay? So it's just defining who's getting the inheritance, okay? So it's not everybody, it's just those God has set his intent on, okay? And those who've called uh, to, uh, to faith. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Speaking again of Jesus, verse 10, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. In other words, it was time for the gospel to come. It was time for all of this Old Testament stuff that pointed towards and all this, all this uh, uh, the imagery and everything we had in the Old Testament all pointing towards Christ. It was the fullness of time. Christ came. Summing up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. Now he's talking about future kingdom. So he's summing it all up. It all was the fullness of time. Christ came. He redeemed those who came to know him and believed on his name. And now this fullness of summing everything up, Christ is going to take care of all that. We looked at all that in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. Verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance. So scripture speaks of it as a future reality and as a present reality. Like here. The inheritance is so certain as a believer, you've already received it. See, you've obtained an inheritance. Now, do you see it right now? No. You, you have the new you, and you look and hope for, forward to it, right? But you know it's so certain. The scripture just makes it yours, right? It's already yours. You've received an inheritance. Then he says this. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were seated in him, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of your what? What's the last word? Inheritance. So you've already received that inheritance. It's just as like it already belongs to you, like you're already enjoying it, and yet it's reserved in heaven for you, and you were given the Holy Spirit at salvation to prove you have a down payment that that inheritance belongs to you. See, The Holy Spirit that resides within you is your down payment. He's your security deposit with a view to what? To the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There's a future time coming where all this stuff is going to be wrapped up. Everything we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all going to be wrapped up. And you've got the Holy Spirit that guarantees that that inheritance belongs to you. The redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So the inheritance is this eternal state of his kingdom delivered to the Father, reserved for all who believe. And believers can't get to that kingdom without a transformation that changes the flesh and blood into a body suitable for that domain. And he just confirms that classification of what we, that we have now when he just says this in verse 50. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Notice n things that are decaying 
Things that are falling apart are not inheriting things that don't. All of that stuff that's about you and about your humanness and about Adam, that's all going to pass away. And a new body is going to be given. And Paul's going to go in the next verse, next time that we look at this next week, Paul's going to go in the next verse, he's going to talk about whether you're alive or dead. That's pretty cool too. Because we understand what the decay, what decay happens in the grave, and we talked about that earlier. So a marvelous thing that Paul's giving some instruction here, and it's important that we know it. It's part of our hope. It's part of, the, of what we understand so that we can explain the gospel to other people. It, it helps us communicate how the resurrection is going to work. It's so contrary to what we understand about life. And so these are things Paul says, listen, you need to know this. And so we as a church need to know it as well. So is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. So the words perishable and imperishable and the combination of flesh and blood just seems to indicate that neither the living nor the dead at the coming of Christ will go into the kingdom as they are. They both have to be transformed. And so I think that's Paul's, Paul's uh, emphasis here. So as you can see, chapter comes to a magnificent peak. Paul makes it clear that those who rise will not be creatures of flesh and blood. They'll be changed as uh, those who are alive uh, will be changed when that day comes. They'll no longer have bodies liable to death, liable to decay, liable to letting us down, liable to doing what it wants, liable to, to fleshly appetites. None of that will be present. He's moved from questioning the idea that they had that people don't rise, that Christ doesn't rise, where he showed them the folly and the disaster of all of that position to really the triumph of Christ and what he's won over death itself. He's moved past the scoffers. If they haven't gone on by, got on board by now, they're not going to. This is for the believers. If you understand this, you have triumph in Christ and your future is glorious. And it calls really for a thanksgiving to God at the source of victory, doesn't it? And an exhortation to steadfastness. And that's what he ends with. He says, listen, because this is true, because you conquer all this, because maybe you've had physical problems all your life, that's all going to pass away. Maybe you've struggled with a sin issue in your life, and you, and you bring this before the Lord constantly. That's all going to pass away. Someday, complete triumph. Someday, not flesh and blood anymore. Someday, single will, purpose to serve the Lord, and you get to do it in a body prepared for that. Someday. So because that's true, rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. See? And be steadfast, immovable in everything. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you have this triumph. That's your purpose. It promotes your purpose and your, and your motivation in life. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for how wonderful it is. We're so grateful for uh, being able to have it, a complete copy. And Father, I pray that we'll, as we reemphasize again, as we often do, uh, the importance of reading it on a daily basis, of getting the word in us and understanding what it says, what it means by what it says, and making application. Father, I pray that you'll have each of us make a new commitment to do that. There's so many passages, we barely scratch the surface of the passages that say, you should know or know this or you know. Father, help us certainly to know those things. How embarrassing that would be and how embarrassing it probably is for angels who watch us right now uh, to know our patterns of reading the word and to know that there's no way we could know the things, even the most basic things that we should know. Help us not to be satisfied with that position, but instead to reaffirm and, and commit to being in the Word on a daily basis, that we might know your will. We might understand what your Holy Spirit desires for us to do. We might be unified together as a body. We would be generous and, and, uh, and faithful in our ministry, uh, committed in fervency to the things that we are doing here. That we might know how to best share the gospel and what is the gospel. And we might recognize the opportunities we have to defend the faith and do it, casting down everything that's raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Lord, there's just so many areas that you can use us, Father, if we are tools prepared for your service. So I pray that you'll help us to be that way. Thoroughly furnished for every good work, which is what your word does for us as we read it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.